0: So, my name is Cormac Russell, and um, I was, I suppose, in the biography sense, I was um, born in Limerick, which is in the west of Ireland, and raised there. Um, So, I'm Irish, and um, I suppose, in in the sense of the connection that you and I have... um, we both share similar passions, um, maybe use different language, but um, I think are trying to do similar things. So I'm part of a movement called Asset-Based Community Development, or what we now call Asset-Based Community Driven Efforts. Um, and we have a number of, uh, I suppose, anchor points. One one is an institute which is based out of um, Chicago, uh, originally we started in Northwestern um, University, it was kind of a home base for us, uh, but we've moved recently to DePaul University, but actually we're much more rooted in communities than we are uh, in universities. And um, my role there is I'm a faculty member, and um, one of my key responsibilities is promoting asset-based community-driven efforts in uh, in the EU, as we know it, it seems to be changing by the day, but um, across Europe and beyond. And um, so, yes, that's that's a short bio.
1: And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what asset-based community-driven efforts mm. are?
0: Well, I suppose, in a sense, the, the, the best entry point to it is to talk a little bit about the heritage of, you know, um, of, of John McNight and Jodie Kretzman. So these two old community organizers who, who um, latterly took up working with universities began in the 80s to be really concerned that a lot of the relationships that outside professionals had with communities were one way, and largely the focus on the part of the professionals was very much on what was wrong with communities. So they spent um, about four years in the, the 80s traveling around about 300 neighborhoods across 20 cities in North America trying to hear people into expression really and hear, hear people use their own words to describe what happens that, you know, makes things better or stronger or more vibrant or healthier for them. And uh, what local people described was what eventually became known as asset-based community development. So ABCD, I would say, is not a model uh, or even an approach so much as a description of what happens when local indigenous people come together and behave effectively uh, in a way that's, you know, about right relationship with each other, um, especially those who are on the margins of their community, but also right relationships with their environment, their culture and their economy. And, of course, the place. Sorry, uh, and 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 of course the actual place, the neighbourhood or the village that they're they're in, so that the ecological sense.
1: Hmm. And how do you see that the the tension between communities getting on and doing things for themselves and government trying to do as little as possible? I remember when when uh, there was Hurricane Sandy in the US Noam Chomsky and and there was the Occupy Sandy where mm-hmm. loads of people got mobilised and we're usually there before the first responders. Noam Chomsky saying this is a terrible idea because this is exactly what neoliberals want is for us all to do everything so they can make the government even smaller. So, you know, the more that we take on and do ourselves, do we let government off the hook? How, how do you see that, that tension?
0: I, I think, yeah, I mean, Noam Chomsky's um, version of reality is, is obviously very well respected, but I'm going to have to part company with him. Um, look... First of all, I think government and, and, and even more evolved governments that have strong welfare states. I was, I was in Denmark um, last week for three days. Um, clearly, at their best, they're an extension of us, not a replacement for us. Um, so I think that it's important to say that there are certain things that individuals, families and communities can do that are irreplaceable, that there is no government proxy for. Um, And the difficulty with Noam Chomsky's kind of version of reality is is that actually one of the things that people do really well is help each other in times of crisis and to suggest that there's a service or a program that does that better, to my mind, is actually neoliberalism, because what it's doing is is it's corporatizing and commodifying something that exists outside of contract, which is um, humanity. Um, and our ability to come together and be better at being human together that's not that's not about service that's not about programs that's about mutuality it's about uh, community it's about regard it's um, it's about all the things that I would describe as care and and at the heart of that is you know uh, a belief that care cannot be managed controlled commodified bought or sold care is the freely given gift of the heart so I'm not sure what he means by Uh, government um, in that sense. But my understanding is primarily government does things that we cannot do ourselves. And at its best, it also comes alongside us and helps us um, to do things we can do by creating a dome of protection, making sure that um, outside corporate interests don't destroy those impulses Um, and, and also creates a democratic space whereby we can keep them honest and hold them to account and say this is what we're doing, this is what we need your help to do, and this is what we need you to do for us. So I think Norm's version of democracy actually, for my money, is quite one-dimensional.
1: I love that tone where you talk about a dome of protection uh, around the inventiveness of local people. I mean, at the moment, what seems to be happening, certainly in the UK, is that the, through austerity, the ability of local government to provide that dome or the willingness of them to provide mm. that dome seems to be contracting. What pressure can we bring to bear when that doesn't happen?
0: I think I'll, it's this is probably going to sound a little bit counterintuitive, but my sense of it is is that there are three questions to be answered here. And the first question really is uh, in terms of getting a better settlement um, in the broader sense. The first question is: What can we do ourselves that we don't need help to do? Um, you know, and how can we how can we release, uh, discover, connect, and mobilise that inventiveness at civic level? Um, that's the first thing. I, I think the second thing is, is: What can we do ourselves, but with some help from outside? And the third and the last thing to ask, once we've figured out the answer to those first two, is: What do we need outside agencies to do for us? My argument is, is if we took on the austerity challenge following that sequence, we would have a much, much more powerful negotiation position uh, when it comes to a new settlement than we currently have, which largely, I think, is trying to mobilize people to act as consumers, albeit disaffected consumers, to get a better settlement from the government who are treated as the exclusive producers. Sometimes we use narrative like co-production, but largely I'm not seeing an awful lot of um, co-production happening. I'm seeing a lot of co-design happening. But this idea that, my understanding of co-production is is that at a minimum there are two parties coming together, both of which are productive. Um, and if that's the case, then I think that co-production can only happen when the community from grassroots up defines what it can do And then finds out, you know, from doing that, from flexing its own civic muscle, what it needs from outside. So if I was to simplify it, I would say communities can't, they can't know what they need from outside sources until they first know what they have themselves internally. Um, And my fear is, is that we're, we're getting that the wrong way around.
1: Um, there was a piece recently that uh, John Harris wrote in The Guardian mm. where he was looking at sort of different, uh, looking at kind of what communities can be doing and how the sort of the shift, supposed shift to the right in communities that we saw through Brexit, and particularly sort of left behind working class communities. He said, and he, was, he talked about, he didn't mention transition, but he talked about like community energy projects and local food projects and these sort of initiatives. He said the challenge for all of them is to push beyond the usual middle-class suspects and begin to take what they do in the largely working-class places that most vividly embody the current political crisis. What's your sense of uh, of the kind of resources and approaches and tools that we need to take to, to make that step across from, from those approaches and ideas that often resonate more in kind of... Middle class places and to, to embed them more widely.
0: Well, you see, I, I think it's really interesting, and one wh- one question speaks to the other in a sense. I mean, so so just backing up a little bit, um, Rob, I, I would say that you know if if we take as sacrosanct and non negotiable this idea that we're paying into a shared pool, um, you know, in terms of tax, and that we expect that that will be distributed. Um, in a way that gives everybody a fair crack of the whip. Um, That's a given. That's the irreducible minimum of a just society. Uh, I think one of the things that's happened in the UK is we've immediately leapfrogged into, and the only way to distribute that wealth is to give people services and programs. And the whole narrative is around um, we are not going to accept cuts to our services and programs. That's fine insofar as it goes, but there are other ways that we can distribute wealth that would actually enable communities, regardless of whether they're, you know, um, low income or high, high income, um, to um, include everybody. I, I, I'll give you, a for instance, of this just to ground this a little bit. Um, and this comes from, you know, the capital of neoliberalism, the United States. The GI Bill of Rights is a really interesting policy piece, which in a way created a dome of protection around um, poor servicemen and women who returned from the Second World War. But they didn't do it by giving them goods and services. They created government bonds, effectively, which made these folks walking down payments on houses um, when they returned to communities, enabled them, if they wanted to return to education, to choose their own programs rather than go to you know, the ones that were prescribed for them and gave them the resource to set up their own business if they wanted to. Now, ironically today, many of those people who received those kinds of supports from the state um, would think about themselves as self-made men and women and possibly even voted for Trump. The state did such a good job supporting their inventiveness and their creativity and their imagination, they don't even remember that they were supported by the state. <laughs> so so it seems... Now, the, the interesting thing is, is we all know that uh, rich men start wars and poor men fight them. So beforehand, many of these men were seen by the state as uh, welfare recipients. right? They go, they fight a war, and by some social alchemy, they come back and they're heroes. And because they're heroes, the state passes a policy that treats them like people of value, making them of value to their economy and their community. And nobody bats an eyelid. But when you're a poor person, somehow those policies are different. So what I find fascinating is, is with our articles like, you know, John's and so on and so forth, is where, where's the discussion around basic income? Where is the discussion around the environment? Where is the discussion around um, our culture? Where is the discussion, you know, discussion around our associational lives? The discussion is totally and utterly cemented in one dimension of people's lived experience and reality, which is being a client of goods and services. And I think that's fine. But what I want is I want to be able to talk about that and everything else. And I think what often happens is we get sandwiched between the right and the left. And it becomes almost impossible for us to talk about, um, well, as well as the individual and the institution being units of change, our neighborhood is a unit of change. It's a dynamic, breathing, productive place, which actually has the space to take rich and poor and a whole range of people with real challenges in their lives and liberate some of their inventiveness as well as meet their needs. And I think. Often, you know, this is what permaculture, I think, teaches very well, that when we try to elementalize that conversation and just talk about one part, invariably we we create polarization and partisanship. And this is why so many people now are rejecting the left-right schism. And I think people are beginning to find new ways of expressing themselves that are collective, that are about collective effort and not just self-expression or self-consumption.
1: And what's your sense of, you know, in in, in the wider field uh, that you work in, what's your sense of what the transition movement has brought to that over the last 10 years or so? What's it it brought to that?
0: Well, I think it's so many different ways, you know, whether you start the conversation around health or you start the conversation around how do we include people with disabilities. One of the things it fundamentally does, I think, very helpfully, is it says that the discussion has to be about interdependence rather than uh, independence you know that we are interdependent on each other we are interdependent on our lo- you know on our land we're interdependent on uh, the, the the food that comes from the land that we you know the land we move through the land that moves through us that we're interdependent on associational life and in all sorts of ways this idea of being an individualistic, hyper-local consumer of goods and services and produces uh, produce um, is a nonsense. Um, and so I'm seeing, for example, um, in the disability movement, uh, people saying, well, it's a nonsense just to talk about people who have disablements um, without also talking about their gifts, their talents, how they connect to the land, how they connect to their culture, how they can get connected into in so many different ways get connected into a good life and not just a good service. For me, as I understand it, the transition towns movement um, brings that holistic um, narrative instead of this obsessive elementalizing people. Um, I don't know that that was its original intention, but I think a consequence of the very rich way that you narrate um, the world we live in is that I'm hearing more and more people say we can't just talk about health separate from the environment, or inclusion separate from, you know, the inclusion of people separate from culture. Um, and I would attribute at least some of that to what you guys have achieved, though I'm, I'm sure it wasn't necessarily what you uh, what you originally focused on.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've, I've seen you talk about in different places is the role of food and how central mm. that mm. is. I mean, so... What, what is the role that food should play in, in rebuilding and, and re-strengthening communities?
0: Well, well in so many ways, I think what food does is, is it, it heals us. I mean, if I can be just a little bit conceptual for a second, it heals us from this Cartesian kind of divide, this mind-body um, divide that we all suffer from, um, because everybody has to eat at some level uh, or other. And it's just this wonderful interface moment this that, that, that just embodies us. Um, and reminds us that um, we're all connected um, and all interreliant. Um, I, th- I think the lovely thing about food is in so many ways it's just the simplicity. I, I can say to somebody regardless of what age they are that if you eat food that doesn't rot you're in trouble (laughs) and they get it you know and so right there at that moment i've explained so many conceptually difficult things to explain like what we mean by acid-based community development what we mean by transition and so on you know um uh, so just eat what rots you know
1: (laughs) before before uh, it's rotted
0: before, ideally, ideally. Yeah, ideally. So, said uh, else get in, get in, like, get in there first.
1: I heard someone a version of that. They said, "Never, never eat anything you've seen advertised on the television." <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Um. And and so you know, in so many ways, it's like you know, the, it's really interesting, right? So we we t- we started the conversation around austerity. Um. And austerity is a f- effectively fiscal retrenchment because money is being spent. Obviously, continues to be spent in other areas. Um which do horrendous damage to us and our environment um, and, you know, give all kinds of benefits to very wealthy people which enable them to do horrendous damage. So, you know, um, and I think that it's it's when you put all those pieces together that we really are very understandably angry, especially when you go back in history and you look at, What happened in the UK uh, around the introduction of the welfare state? um, You know, where I mean, goodness me, you know, forty, forty-two, forty-three. We we were looking at the ratio of GDP to debt at something like two hundred and thirty-eight percent in two thousand and ten. That ratio was, I can't remember exactly, but it was somewhere. uh, It was lower than Japan, America, and a whole range of other places. You know, and and I think. I guess what it sort of really calls home to me is just this whole um, dishonesty, this profound dishonesty um, that's at play. And food is a lovely reminder that if we're waiting on our leaders to get their act together, to reverse that reality, we're going to go hungry or we're going to eat stuff that's going to kill us. That if we're waiting to really change uh until our leaders change. We'll never change. We'll never actually activate. So for me, an awful lot of that is is we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get back to the kitchen table, away from the the boardroom table, and do what really brings human beings together best. Break bread together, have fun together and organise together. Um so that that that's that's a very fundamental belief of A B C D and something I'm I'm passionate about.